Galatians chapter 3. So, um, I wanted to attack last week's subject from another passage uh, throughout the week. And I think this is a valid question. It's a question that I had for years. And uh, my family and I were talking about it at the breakfast table on Monday. And if we don't live by the law, then how do we live? Right, because the, and even Paul addresses that in chapter seven. He addresses it in Galatia, and because there's a concern, as soon as you, and if you recall, last week we looked at in in chapter four, verse thirteen, or uh, verse fifteen, excuse me, in chapter five, verse thirteen, and in chapter six, verse fourteen, and in chapter seven, multiple times, Paul says, "Look, we've been slain to the law. We're dead to it. The law no longer has authority over us." And, and, and as we kind of researched it and we looked at it, we read it by review. And if you're not familiar with that, uh, you might want to listen to the teaching because it was just kind of a, a whole thing about why that's important. See, we know from chapter 6, Romans 6, we know from Romans chapter 7, and even into chapter 8, which we'll, God willing, look at next week, that when we put our faith in Christ, we die to sin, the sin nature. We're severed from it, its power. We died to the law. We were severed from its power. And now the life that we live, we live in Christ. And we live his resurrection life, a new life. And the reason for the severing from the law is not to create lawlessness, but the law could only do one thing. Remember what does Paul say? He says it brings wrath, it brings condemnation, and it cannot make a person righteous. See, the law was weak only because we're weak, because we're unable to fulfill it. So by us dying to the law, as we as we look at in six and chapter uh, excuse me uh, chapter four and chapter five, in when in dying to the law, we were then alleviated from its blame, from its conviction and its wrath. See, if, if the law still applied to the believer, you and I would still have sin imputed. That's an important word, imputed. It just means deposited. It's the, it's the Bible word for that sin was deposited in our account. In other words, it's kind of that, that idea that when we committed sin, that it was registered to us, that we were the owner, almost like our, our conviction file, our case file. And when Christ died, he took our case file in, in himself, and all the imagery is, that we have is that he, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that he bore our sins on his, or in his body, and that he took our sins and he nailed them to the cross. See, so the cross is where there's, there's forgiveness, erasure, absolution from sin for anyone who believes, anyone who trusts in what Jesus did. So now that on the other side of that, when Paul's saying, look, it's like, it's like a person when they get married, and if they were to go and be with another person and, and have sex with another person, that that person in that marriage would be considered an adulterer. But he says, but if the husband or the wife of the married person dies, then the spouse that's left can legally go and get remarried. And they're not considered an adulterer. Because the law, because of the death of the spouse, the law no longer applies to them. That's the illustration he gives. He even says, I love it, he even says like, well, sometimes my illustrations, they break down. He says, I'm speaking like in the flesh when he talks about slavery and these things. But the point is that through the death of Christ, we died to the law, and so therefore for the believer, sin is no longer imputed. 
But now, as Christians, if, if we're not living by the law, and he sums up chapter 7, he says, therefore, we don't live any longer under the oldness of the letter. What's the letter? It's the law. What law? All the law. The 600 and some odd Levitical tenets. The Ten Commandments. Your law about having devotions in the morning, or my law about that. That those laws, fulfilling them, they can never result in righteousness. Only faith in Christ and what he did as the righteous one results in righteousness. So if we've been alleviated from the law, then how do we live? Can we just do whatever we want? Can I murder someone now? Can I embezzle? Can I rip off? Can I, can I do those things? And it's okay. And Paul says, yeah, you can do those things. And it won't be imputed to you spiritually. But in chapter 6, he says, do you not know that who you yield your members to, that's who you become a slave of? And if you yield your members to righteousness, then you will be a slave or, in a sense, a servant of righteousness, and that will gain righteous fruit. Remember, 6 and 7 are all about fruit. But he says, but if you yield your members to unrighteousness or to sin, or really your sin nature, who you are in Adam, your old identity, then you will produce death. And we've all observed that, right? And that's what we've been talking about for four weeks and, and kind of going over and over again. And that might, and again, if, if that makes you feel uncomfortable, what I've said, or if you feel that's unscriptural, I would be absolutely glad not to argue with you, but to sit down and talk about it. Because it's so important. Because if you or I try to say, no, 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 you're still under the law, even though it says over and over again you're not, really what you're saying in the end is this. I have to do to maintain my salvation. And that, my friends, is a very dangerous game. Because what you're saying is, by my own efforts and righteousness, I get myself to heaven. That Jesus Christ was like a down payment, like a mortgage for my home in heaven. And now I make the monthly payments by doing the law, whatever the law is. And when, as I continue to make my monthly payments, that someday when I get to heaven, I'll die, but I've made my payments, and so now I get to be in heaven with Jesus. And when you, when you calculate out like that, you go, well, that's crazy to think that we could be righteous enough to stand before God and say, you're welcome. I kept your law. I did everything you asked me to do. And now I deserve a place here. It's ridiculous. It's a gift. It's always been a gift. So in Galatians, Paul is addressing the same thing. And he specifically begins to talk about how do we live as Christians if I'm not living according to the law. In other words, if I don't pick any law, it doesn't matter. If, 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 I like to use the devotional law because having a devotion is a good idea, right? Could we all, if, if we went around and we interviewed each other, we said, hey, do you think it would be a good idea to have a time with Jesus in the morning where you just sat down, asked him for help in your life, read the scriptures a bit, considered what they said, spent some time worshiping him, and then went to work. Probably every one of us would say, you know, I think that'd probably be a good idea. It'd be weird if you're like, that sounds like a terrible idea. Like, are you serious? You want me to consider Jesus in the morning before I went to work? Like, if that's kind of our attitude, that's probably a different sermon. But, the, you know, the, the point being is that that's a good thing to do. But as soon as I say... I have to do this to make Jesus love me more, to have him accept me more, to 
have my ministry always be successful? You know, it's funny because Paul even makes the point in Galatians, if you were to read the whole thing, where he says, let me ask you something. He said, do the miracles that, occur, that occurred in your church, did they happen because of law, you, because you obeyed a law, or did they happen because the Spirit was moving in your midst? He even challenges that notion. It's interesting. Anyway, all that to say, I'm not advocating for disobedience. I'm saying as soon as we say that doing something makes me in better standing with God, we're, we're rejecting the gospel. We're rejecting the truth of what the cross did. And that's what, what Paul talks about. So how can we, because Ephesians tells us, right? Ephesians 2 tells us that we got saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. But in, in verse 10, we're told this, that we were saved unto good works, that he, we are his workmanship, his poema is the Greek, that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he foreordained. So we know that Christianity is so that we can walk with God, we can be in, in connection with God, we can be receiving our life from God, that we can be involved in the works that he has for us to do, that he foreordained, we don't have to make them up, we can walk in what he wants us to do. And not just kind of this like Christian libertarian where I just do and say what I want to do. That will always reap death. Not eternal separation from God, but it will reap death in our church, in our family, in our private lives, at our jobs, if we walk that way. So where does the balance? And that's, that's also what Paul begins to talk about here. So what's happening in Galatians is that what there have been people that came into Galatia because he was there. He was there for a number of months. He talked to them himself. He was part of the founding of the church. And, he, and he's writing back to them because they were Jews. So it's a different context. There were Jews that were coming through. They were called, he called them Judaizers. And they were saying, hey, you, we're glad that you're saved. We're glad that you, you believe in, in Jesus. But here's the thing. You also need to be circumcised. And you need to uh, observe the Sabbath and the dietary laws. And, and some other stuff. So they were bringing the law, the Jewish law, back to Christians and saying, you need to be doing these things. And it's interesting because Paul, in kind of the finalization of his thoughts about bringing the law to Christians, is he makes a play on words. It doesn't, it's, it's a little bit more um, socially acceptable in our English translations. But in, in, in 5.12, he says, I wish the people that were troubling you would be cut off. That's very polite because literally he's talking about he's talking about bringing circumcision in, and what he's literally saying is, I wish the people that are that are telling you that you need to be circumcised wouldn't stop at their foreskin. He's literally saying in the Bible, inspired by the Spirit, I wish they would cut it all off. That's literally what he's saying. I'm not saying that to be crass. I'm not saying that to be funny or edgy. I'm saying that because that's what he's saying in the Greek because Paul is making this statement that's so foundational. He says that, it, that to bring in any other gospel, save the cross, it's anathema. It's accursed. It's, it's terrible. And he's using one of the most graphic illustrations we can probably think of to illustrate that's how far he wishes they would go. So in, in the, the, the finality of what's happening here, Paul's saying, look, we don't follow the law as Christians. In their context, it's the bringing in the Jewish law for righteousness. In the Romans 7 context, it's for anyone, that it, in any law being brought in to try to find righteousness in it. But he starts making some conclusions. And so in Galatians chapter 3, if you, if you wouldn't mind turning there, sorry, we're going to start in chapter 2. In Galatians chapter 2, he says this. 
We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And I'm not going to take time to explain all this. It's, I encourage you to read it on your own and check it out because he's talking to both Jews that are in the church that have gotten saved and he's talking to Gentiles that are in the church that have gotten saved. And now he's just referencing the Jews that have gotten saved. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because the works of the law, excuse me, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Remember, justified is that um, it's a judicial term that Paul has adopted for the, uh, the spiritual sense of being right with God. And not just being declared innocent, but being declared righteous. Does that make sense? So it's not just I have a lack of sin, it's that I actually have the righteousness of God in me through what Christ did at Calvary. He's going to go on there. He's going to say there in uh, verse, see where we leave off here, there in verse uh, 17, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. So this is what we're talking about. This is, he's re-illustrating from a different point of view, the same point that in Christ we died to the law so that we'd be free to live to God. If we had not been severed from the law through the death of Christ, we would not be free to just purely live to God. We would be in bondage to continue to do the things of the law. It's very important. Remember, Paul demonstrates, he says, if you break one law, you are guilty of breaking all of the law. So the whole thing, and I'm not trying here to pick on anyone, so please don't read it that way. But when we get into doctrines that say, well, we keep this part. We just make sure that we have the Sabbath and that we make sure that we eat kosher. But no, we don't do any of the sacrifices and we don't do any of the other stuff. We don't, we don't harvest our garden in a circle. We don't you know, walk through other people's fields and just eat as we but not take anything away. No, no. He says, look, you cannot do that. You cannot isolate portions of the law and say, we keep this, and God wants this for righteousness, but this part over here we don't do. And that's, that's I think, by some people, that's a, out of a good place, a good heart, are trying to explain, like, how do we actually live? We have to have some law. If we don't have any law, then people will just do whatever they want. It'll be crazy. It'll be pandemonium. No, it won't be pandemonium. Because we no longer live by the law, we live by the Spirit. And trust me, that's a lot harder. <laughs> you might recall the Sermon on the Mount, for example. That was a wildly more difficult expansion to the original law. Where Jesus says, hey, you've heard it said, right? That you shouldn't kill someone. But I'm telling you, if you kill someone, or if you hate someone, you've committed murder in your heart. So all of a sudden, wow, you know, if we're going to try to do it ourselves, like, can we please have the law back? How many of us have hated someone in our heart? Anyway, we'll move on. I don't want to get too caught up on that. But he's making this point. And he's going to go on. He says, verse 20, and here's the crux of the, end, of the issue. I have been crucified with Christ. Now, we've read that, right? We've read that. Where do we read that? Chapter 6, Romans chapter 6. So he's expressing the same ideas here. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. When I, by faith, associated and agreed with 
what Christ did at Calvary, dying for my sin, in God's estimation, I died with him. Now, I just, just a side note. You might be saying, wow, James, this is incredibly repetitive. I understand that. I've been a Christian for 28 years, and I'm could we consider myself in general a slow learner, but it took me decades to understand this, to really consider it and internalize it. And I'm a huge learner by repetition. So I apologize, genuinely apologize if you go, wow, this is really repetitive. But this is how I learned it. And this is how it worked for me. So that's why I'm trying to go through this and every single time kind of lay out the definitions again and every single time talk about what we're talking about so that you don't go out of here. Because what I did in my youth, I would go out going, but that sounded really great. I don't know what it was, but it sounded really great. So that's why I'm trying to be repetitious here. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me. Isn't that exactly what he told us in the first what, 11 verses of chapter 6? That when Christ was crucified, we identified by faith. We were crucified with him. And now I, who's the I here? Is it your soul? No, it's not your soul. It's your old nature. The old you. Your, your old identity that you got from where? From Adam. Your spiritual and seminal identity that has been passed down since the beginning of man and given to you is no longer alive in you if you've trusted in Christ. He was crucified. He, she was crucified with Christ. And that frees up your soul, who you are, that makes you like red or blue or Christmas or not or whatever. Who you are is now free to be led by and, and empowered by the Spirit. So he says, I was crucified with Christ. Now I, it's no longer I who live. The, 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 the I that lives now is the I that the new creation or the new man in Christ, the new person in Christ. That's the life that I live. So when he says it's no longer, if we keep going there in verse 20, he says, um, uh, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. See, we now live and have that authority, like we're just talking about, because Christ is now in us. All right? We have a different life source. Our old life source was pure death. It was the old nature, the sinful nature. That's now been crucified with Christ. Now I have a new life source. And that life source is Christ in me. And I have the opportunity to live that life out. See, the law could never do this, right? The law could never empower you to do what is right. It could only show you when you had done what is wrong and then condemn you for it. And then he says, And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So the life that we live now, it's lived by faith. And if you've traveled in Christian circles for probably more than 30 seconds, you've heard and you've seen the bookmarks and all those things that say, I live by faith. And I don't know about you, but especially in the early years of my Christianity, that was such a nebulous term. Because if you, you see and you observe all the different walks of life that say, I live by faith, to one person it's like, I live by faith. So I move to a new city every two weeks and I'm homeless and I do this. And hey, God bless those guys. That's fine. To another person, they say, I live by faith, so I go to the same job every day, and I do the same work every day, and I do this. That's, praise God, that's fine. Some people say, I live by faith, and they come up with really weird stuff. Well, they're like, I live by faith, so I just spray paint Jesus loves me on people's stuff. You're like, ah, I'm not sure. Mm, is that really living by faith? 
you know, I guess it is in one sense it is because you just are so psyched about the gospel. But it's, that would be like essentially like zeal and ignorance, right? So what does he mean by the life that I now live? I live by faith in the Son of God, in, in Jesus Christ, is to live by who Jesus is. And think of it this way. When we pray and we say in the name of Jesus, that is not a lamp, like a genie, right? Where you're like, oh, Lord, I want this and I want this and I want this. In the name of Jesus, right? That's not legitimate. When we say we pray in the name of Jesus, what are we saying? I'm asking for what I want. I think he wants. Lord, we want visitors to come to our church and get saved because Jesus wants that. Lord, we want, we want to have our lives fulfilled in you and to be doing what you want because Jesus wants that. There's no magic words. You can end a prayer. I'm setting you guys free right now. You can end your prayer and just stop praying. And he'll still answer it if it's according to his will and his name. Be free, my friends. You can say in the name of Jesus. It's fine. It makes everybody else around you feel comfortable. But, you know, you don't have to. There's no magic word. It's, like it's not like the official ending to it. And so here he's saying that the, the life that I now live by faith, I live by what does Jesus want? Who is he? What is his character? How do I walk in that? See, the law, in some sense, is so much easier because it never even considers the heart. Oh, I just have to not murder someone. If being a good person, you know, I've said this before because it always makes me chuckle. When somebody will be like, hey, you know, I'm a good person. I mean, I've never killed anyone. You're like, that's the minimum for being a good person? That feels pretty low. That's a low bar for being a good person, not murdering someone. No, that, that we now are called to live the life that Christ lived. The difference is when we were under the law, we could never live it. But now, empowered by his spirit, we can live it. But we don't live it because we have to. And if we don't, we get condemned. We live it because we have the opportunity and the power to. And the fruit of it will be life. See, that's as a Christian, when we decide, how am I going to walk? We're not set free to do whatever we want. No, twice, actually, in Galatians, two times, uh, Paul says, you've been set free. You've been saved so that you can have liberty. But he says, only don't use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. Now, what's the flesh? Right? Another synonym. The old man, the Adamic, the Adamic uh, nature, the, the nature we received from Adam, the sinful nature. Right? Those are all synonyms in the Bible for the same idea. The flesh, the nature that came from Adam. So he says, you have, you have liberty from your sin. You have liberty from the law. You have liberty from all those things. But don't take that liberty now and invest it in the things of the, of the sinful nature. It's a lie. It's a deception. And the fruit will always be death. Always. I'm, I, I know that we could interview every one of us who's a believer in Jesus and say, can you point to a time when you were saved, where you walked in the flesh, and then ask yourself, what did it reap? What did it gain? Maybe some good times for a little while. I mean, the writer of Hebrews is very candid and says, look, sin is pleasurable for a while. If sin wasn't pleasurable, we wouldn't do it, right? If partying like animals, having wild nights out, if self-medicating with substances, if yelling at people, to others, if violence, if it wasn't fun, if it wasn't invigorating to us in some way, we wouldn't do it, would we? If it didn't feel good to trash talk our political opponents, if it didn't feel good to, to mock people that we feel are beneath us, 
We wouldn't do it, would we? Have you ever, I, I, I will say this, I have experienced before mocking someone and then experienced the fruit of it. And it's a bitter fruit. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Mocking someone either behind their back or to their face. And then realizing later what you've actually destroyed. What an ill word can actually destroy in a moment. What, what speaking behind people's backs when it's found out can destroy in a moment. It's devastating. And I think in, in an honest moment, we would say when we yielded to the flesh, it, re- it reaped, is that a word? Repped? Reaped? Death. It did. For us and for those who did it. So he's going to go on here in, this, in the same idea of, of how do we continue to live. And if we were to uh, read into verse 3, we're going to skip a little bit. Not because I'm, I'm trying to go out of context. I'm just trying to save some time. So I would encourage you to feel free to read that. But in verse uh, 7 of chapter 3. Oh, I'm sorry. You know what? We're just going to skip to 5. If we go back to chapter 5 and we look at verse 13, and really 3 and 4 are about what he is, uh, essentially the relationship of the believer to the law, which we covered in great detail last week, um, what the law was designed to do. And I encourage you to read it because he, he, he's making the, the point over and over again that we're reading in Romans 7 that the law can never give life to someone. It can't. Only because we're the weak link in that. It's perfect and good and spiritual. But because of our weakness, it cannot make us righteous. It can only show us what righteousness is. And he, makes, he says, look, it's a tutor for us. It was to condemn us. It was to bring us to Christ. And in chapter 5, in verse 13, we'll pick up and he says this. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So he's, he's starting his practical side of this. And he says, look, brothers and sisters, is what the word means in Greek. Look, Christian friends, Christian companions. He says, look, you need to understand something. You were called to be free. He says, but use that freedom to serve. So without condemnation, let me just say this. If we're not serving someone in the name of Jesus in some way, we're not living the life that we were called to. We can live free of service. And our culture tells us that that's true freedom, doesn't it? Our culture tells us to do what we want, to live how we want, to make sure I'm taken care of, to make sure that my feelings are the, are the most bolstered, to make sure that my emotions are the ones that are validated, to make sure all that, that. That's what our culture says is freedom. And we can see exactly where it's brought us, where there's relative truth, and there's your truth and my truth, and my truth tells me this, so I can feel what? Peace and good in whatever I do. It's interesting. But Paul says, no, no, no. Your liberty is to enable you to serve. To serve Christ first and foremost. But typically in serving Christ, we're serving our brethren. In whatever way that might be, a kind word, 
a watchful eye, a meal at my home. I mean, fill in the blank, whatever it might be. I'm not, I'm not trying to make a list here. I'm just giving examples. So he's, he's, he's making this point that as Christians, this is where we're called to. He says, don't use it as an opportunity for the flesh. And he says there, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says, look, the whole law is this. This is the whole point of the law. You don't even need the law if you just love. Looking at my fellow Christian and human being and saying, I want the best for you, regardless of who you are or what you've done. So we've moved. We're not under law anymore. We don't operate under the law anymore. I don't drive down the street on Sunday morning and go, do I see anybody's donkey in a ditch that I need to pull over and help get out of a ditch? Because that's what the law says. No, I drive down the street, and if I see someone laying on the sidewalk or whatever, I'm not saying ladies do this. I tell my kids, don't go near some dude lying on the sidewalk. But if I see that, I'm going to pull over. Do you need help? Because it's the law of love. Right? It's moved. It doesn't, there's no book that says, If thou seest a stranger laying upon the ground because they are inebriated, thou shalt pull over it and see how they're doing it. It doesn't exist. It's not there. But we consult the Spirit. Lord, you know what's on my plate this morning. I need to, I need to have a, a, a word ready for your people. But should I pull over and help this person? And with a perfect conscience, I could pass them by or I could stop and help them because I'm led of the Lord. The law would say, no, you have to stop by if it was a law. We don't have that in our life. We minister out of love. There's, there's, there's plenty of opportunity for that. There's, there's plenty of, of, of possibility for that. To love my neighbor as myself. So no, you're not under the law. You can murder someone and it will not be imputed to you by Christ for sin. You will not pay for that sin because Jesus already did. But you will pay with your life, won't you? In guilt, in shame if you're never caught. In observing the destruction that you've caused. And probably prison time, if not execution, depending what state you're in, for the rest of your life. So sin will still destroy Every single time. We can smack talk people and think we've gotten away with it, but it will destroy. It'll destroy at least you. If not, it'll reap death in the person that you're smacking someone else to. We can sit at our computer and rejoice over those, that stupid political party and feel so superior because we've achieved some sort of action out of law. But it'll corrupt you and it'll corrupt the people that you're telling that to. No, my friend, we're here to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're here to pour out our lives. Paul, at one point, it's one of my favorite verses, not because I do it, but because I don't. I want to. In the Philippians, he says, if my life is poured over yours like a drink offering, then I'm satisfied. I love that attitude. I don't always have it. I'm not saying I do. But I love it. That we could stand before Jesus because of his power in our life. And he could say, well done, good and faithful servant, because you poured your life out as a drink offering. There was nothing left for you. You poured it all out on the altar. It's a reference to the old covenant, pouring wine onto a sacrifice, a sin offering, meaning I'm giving you everything. And Paul says, if my life is poured out like that for you guys, people that hated him, he writes in his letters, he says, the more I love you, the more you hate me. The Corinthians, they accuse him. They say, oh, Paul, your letters are so powerful, but you're such a punk in person. You're so weak in person. And he says, but I love you. 
and it's fine with me. You can mistreat me. You can judge me. You can speak poorly of me, but I'm Christ. And I'll pour out my life. And if I get the opportunity, God willing, what a blessing to do that. So no, friends, we're not under the law. We don't live by the law. There's no law that says to love. You ever notice that? You ever notice that not one time in all 619 commandments and sacrifices, we're commanded to love God, but there's no command like, of how to do everything. It doesn't, it's not there. It can only command behavior. And now Jesus comes along and says, no, 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 no. You don't understand. You have my life now. You were unable to love before. You could not love as I wanted you to love. You could not with intrinsic value uh, look at someone else and attribute goodness to them and try to help them. You could not do it. He says, but now you can because you have my life in you. But for many of us, myself included, we're so used to the judgment and the hatred and the rage that that's what we rely on. Instead of going back and saying, no, Lord, I repent of that. That's what repentance is. Lord, I repent of hating my neighbor. When I look at them outside and I, I don't like what they're doing or they're messing with the trash can or they're doing this, they're doing I repent of hating them. I do not get on Facebook and say how stupid my neighbor is. I do not call my family together and like, look at this guy. Can you believe this? Look what that person's doing over there. Moron. I repent of it instead. I say, no, Lord, you love that person. You died for that person. You shed your blood for that person. They're destroying themselves. They're destroying people around them, but you love them. And Lord, I pray for that person. Have mercy on that person like you had mercy on me. Lord, work this out in them. Bring them to yourself. Bring a conviction to their heart. Bring brokenness out of sanctified love for them so they might find you. This is the radical Christian life that we're called to. No, it's no more law, friends. We're called to love. We're called to live the, the, the life that, that Christ lived. And what we find is the more that we die to ourselves, the more that we take up our cross daily, the more that we reckon ourselves dead, whatever Bible phrase you want to fill in for repentance, the more we'll see Christ in us. Even John the Baptist, or excuse me, uh, yeah, said, I must decrease, but he must increase. That's the cry of our hearts, that we would decrease. When we say we, we don't mean our soul. It's not that, oh, I wish I was just a mindless robot with the Holy Spirit in me. No, 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 no. That I, my old nature, who I was before I knew Christ, all oh, that that would decrease. And that my new nature, the sanctified me, the soul that's being changed, all oh, that that would increase. That's our calling. That's how we walk. We don't have time, but he, you know, he, he makes a point. He says, there in, uh, in, in, in chapter 5, when he's talking about, in verse 19, when he talks about the, the works of the flesh, he says the works of the flesh are evident, are obvious. He says they're obvious. Like we, we don't have to wonder about that. And what's the flesh? Remember, the flesh is the old nature, the old man, the nature we inherited from, from uh, Adam. He says that nature, those, that, that fruit, he says it's obvious. He says that, it's interesting how he lays them out. He's sexual immorality. You know, the, the word sexual immorality in the Greek, it's pornea. That might sound familiar. Pornea. And the idea is any immoral sexual act, including uh, literally pornea to, to write about sexual acts. 
It's sexual immorality. He says it's from the flesh. It reaps death. Impurity. It's, it's literally that. It's, a, it's the idea of having a um, uh, essentially moral bankruptness in word or in thought, word or in deed. Strife, or uh, excuse me, uh, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. Sorcery is pharmakia. Probably also sounds familiar. No, nobody's saying that pharmacies are sin. But using, using medications to try to find the spiritual is the idea there. Using drugs to try to find the spiritual, find peace, find rest, find whatever else is out there. Strife. The word strife here, I made a little list. and Actually, I, I, it's, um, it's a list I uh, got from Walvrood because he did a better job than I could. But the idea of strife is, uh, or discord, it's a, it's a natural result of hatred. It's enmity um, between groups. It's interesting, too, because in the last days, we're told in Matthew that, that one, of the, uh, one of the difficulties we're going to have is that there's going to be strife with ethos, there's, or strife with, um, excuse me, um, basically racial groups. That's one of the signs of the last days. But also, all this strife is going to come up between ethnic groups. It's interesting. So that's where we live, isn't it? But he goes on. I'm not going to read them all. I mean, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And he says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And you go, aha, see, Christians who do that, this is what he's saying, Christians who do that, they don't get to go to heaven, they lose their salvation. There's one problem with that. The word do or practice, it's, it's preso, or praso. I don't, my, my Greek's pretty poor. Preso. And the word preso, it's actually not ever used in Romans 5 or in Romans 6 when it's talked about justification. It's not used anywhere in 1 John when he talks about doing sin. It's a reference to those who make their practice. People who are in, in, in touch with and living from their sinful nature. Unbelievers. He's not saying believers. You can reference this for yourself. I'm not just pulling smoke out of the air to try to prove a point here. He's not talking about believers. He's, as he does in, in 1 Corinthians and every other thing, he's saying, look, this is what unbelievers do. Why would you as a Christian practice the very thing that unbelievers do? Why would you walk in what they do? The other place it's used, and just to kind of further the point here, is in Romans 7, where Paul says, the things I do want to do, I don't do. But the things that I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. That word doing is prasso. So if you're going to try to make a case that he's saying Christians that practice these things go to hell, well, Paul freely admits, I practice the things I don't want to do. It's the exact same word. So if you try to make it out that now we're saying, oh, now he's saying Christians can go to, go to hell if they do these sins, it's not practical because then Paul's in hell because he himself said, I practice these things. This is a reference contextually for believers, saying, why would you want to do what you used to do? Why would you want to act like an unbeliever? They'll be separated from God forever because of these things. We will not be separated from God forever because we've been forgiven from those things. We've been cleansed from that. 
But he's making this point. Look, sin is destructive. Don't go back to who you used to be. If that's confusing to you, again, I will be more than happy to have a very friendly, casual conversation about it. Because it's very important. I'm not trying to pull the wool over anybody's eyes. I'm not trying to just be an a, a eternal security guy and just make things say what I want them to say. I'm not trying to do that at all. I'm just trying to say this is what we're talking about. And then lastly, he goes by the fruit of the Spirit, that it's love, joy, and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things there is no law. And then he goes, lastly, he says this. If we live by the Spirit, who lives by the Spirit? Who has life? Whose source of life is from the Spirit? Believers, right? Christians. So if you have life because the Spirit is in you, what is the calling? Let us also keep in step with the Spirit. How do we walk as Christians who are severed from the law and who the law doesn't apply to? We walk by the Spirit. It literally is like keep in step. That's the idea, to continue to walk in step and be abreast of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So no, we never look to law to justify ourselves. Notice what he says there in the last portion. I'm sorry, back in, uh, if we skip back over to 15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Doesn't that seem like kind of a random comment? You know, here he is, and I'm sorry to jump back over to another place, but here he is, he's talking about, hey, we're free from the law, we don't serve by the law, we serve by the newness of the Spirit. And the end of that section he says, hey, but if you, be careful, because if you bite and devour one another, you'll, you'll, you'll consume one another. Doesn't that seem like a weird place to put that? It does to me. Why does he say that? Because it's a comparison. If you live by the law, if you legal, use legalism, if you came to church today, and this is not a conviction or anger, if you came to church today and sang extra loud because you felt you were a good person this week, you're wrongly motivated. Because if, we, if there's ever a place in our life where we gain esteem from what we have done, well, I passed through a church, so it doesn't mean squat. Well, I, I, I donated this, or I did this, or I do that. I did this, I do that. If we measure ourselves to a law and find value or esteem for ourselves from a law that we have, what do we do to people that do not measure up to the same law that we have? Do we not bite and devour them? If I have a devotion every single morning just because I love Jesus and I'm excited to get with him every morning and to hear what he has to say to me, then I, and I meet someone who goes, I never have a devotion. What's my heart going to be for them? Oh, man, you're missing out, right? Isn't that my heart? You're missing out. There's something great to be had. If I have a devotion just because it's what Christians do and it, make God, it make, makes me right with God and he loves me more and I find my legitimacy in that when I meet someone who doesn't have a devotional every day, what is my heart going to be to them? You slacker. You're telling me you can't put Facebook down for 15 minutes to read a little Bible? Is your coffee that important? Are you kidding me? What are you telling your kids? Right? It's amazing the difference between law and love, isn't it? Law works for a while. Law can keep you on the straight and narrow, as it were, for a while. But it will end up in bitterness and pride or depression and anxiety. Because it's, I don't know which one's worse, to be honest. Because either we fulfill our own law and then we elevate ourselves and we justify ourselves. Or we don't fulfill our own law and we get depressed 
and we have anxiousness over it. I don't, honestly, I don't know which one's worse. I think probably failing, to be honest, is probably the better of the two because at least if you fail your own law, you can get a dose of truth that God loves you anyway. Whereas if you succeed at your own law and you measure those who do not, it just ends in condemnation. So here's the thing. God loves you. He's got great things for you. We don't live by law. We don't. It doesn't apply to us. We live by love, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And let those of us who are alive by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. Let's do what the Spirit has for us. I know a guy told me one time, he said, we're just, we're, it was a group of us having a conversation, roommates. And uh, somehow the question of like, what would you do tomorrow if God, was, if God was coming back tomorrow? What would you do? And he goes, I'd, I'd go to work. I was like, what? Why? And he goes, because that's what God wants me to do. It doesn't, doesn't really matter if it comes tomorrow or in 20 years. I just need to do what God wants me to do. So if I had scheduled to cut a tree down, I would cut a tree down. If, I had, if he had told me to do this, I would have done that. And that's how we can live at the end of the day, that we just want to be those that do, that do what God tells us to do and not be those that use our liberty as an excuse for the sinful nature to try to find gratification in that. God bless you guys. Father, thank you for your word and your loving kindness. And we pray, Lord, that you would be working in our hearts. Lord, we pray that, that uh, this Christmas Eve service, that all those people, the visitors that often come, our family members, that they would hear the gospel and that they would get saved. We pray it would be a great time. We pray for this week. We pray that, no, that Christmas wouldn't be a stressor for anyone. But, Lord, that we'd be able to be at peace, whether we have a dollar for presents or we have 10000 But, Lord, that we'd be those that remember the birth of our Savior, communicate that to others, love others as ourselves, and, Lord, that we'd be a blessing to our community and our nation. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys.